Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Digital transformation is rapidly changing the way we live and work, and governments should be leading the way forward, according to Victor Dominello, MP. As the Minister for Digital and Minister for Customer Service in the State Government of New South Wales in Australia, Victor believes government should be playing a central role in fostering a digitally enabled economy across government, private enterprise and individual consumers. Victor is a true servant leader and an inspirational figure in Australian politics, having served almost 15 years in the State Parliament of New South Wales. He has spent this time turning his vision for data and digital enablement into reality across a large number of ministries and government agencies. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discuss how Victor went from reluctant politician to long-serving minister and the sign from above that made him into politics, what the digital government is and how it will change our lives for the better, government's role in digitizing small business, imminent initiatives to protect consumers against identity theft and cyber attacks, what true servant leadership and customer service looks like, how to provide leadership and collaboration across a complex web of government entities, the biggest leadership lessons Victor has learned as a top politician and executive leader, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Victor. Victor Dominello, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. So good to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jonas. And we have a really interesting episode coming up because we're going to be talking about digital government and what that actually means in practice. But let's get started by learning a bit about you. So could you tell us about yourself, your career background and what you do? Sure. Well, it started, I guess, helping my mum and dad out on their family farm. That was hard yards, picking cucumbers and tomatoes and flowers and stuff like that. You learn the value of really hard work there. Then I did some Christmas casual work at the then equivalent of Myers. So I was a checkout person and then worked in men's suits. And then I uh, worked as a lawyer, became a partner at law firm doing commercial litigation. And that's where I really truly understood the value of data because, you know, I'd have some pretty big cases against larger law firms, more horsepower, but using data, I managed to win more cases than not. Then got into politics and in politics, I was initially shocked at the poverty of data or the lack of maturity around data and digital. And we got to a point where we were able to shape the state, particularly through Department of Customer Service, and then uh, moreover across other government agencies to really focus on this. 
Brilliant. I work as a head of data science in a law firm, and I can attest to the fact that there is so much data in that industry and it is quite untapped. So I'm very excited to hear that you already saw that some years ago, some a couple of decades ago, I suppose. And now you're in politics. How did you end up there and why did you decide to get into politics? Well, I didn't want to get into politics. So I was actually, uh, I was, as I said, I was a partner of a law firm. I was, did all my hard yards. I was you know, practicing for about 14 years. And in law, after about 10 years, that's when you start really understanding your brief, as it were. And uh, I remember Glad knocking on my door, Gladys Berejiklian, and the former Premier, knocking on my door saying the MP for Ride has just resigned. So there'll be a by-election. Uh, we want you to run. And I said, no chance in the world. I, who wants to be a politician? You know, particularly a state politician back then, you know, there was scandal after scandal after scandal. I said, why would I want to do that? Like, I've got a great life ahead of me. So long story short, she said, look, I said to her, look, if you can convince my mum, my dad passed away, if I convince my mum, my two sisters, then I'll do it. One sister said, don't do it. We'll never see you again. One sister said, do it. And then my mum said, do it. You'd have to be proud. So I uh, two, one, and I'm here now. There you go. And you were handpicked by the, the premier. So it's, uh, or to become the premier at least at the time. And so that's pretty neat and flattering. Uh, yeah. So you're a bit of a reluctant politician. I definitely did not want to do it. I was enjoying my life, my life path. But I remember going to Mexico on the 10th anniversary of my dad's passing. And uh, I remember vividly, I was um, in Playa del Carmen, gorgeous beach there. And my cousin Jack was in the in the bungalow. I said, man, I'm just going to go for a swim. It was a full moon. And I said to the universe, I said, look, I've got everything. I'm a partner of a law firm. I've worked really hard. You know, I, I know what I'm doing. I've got a great place. I've got my health, got family. If you want me to continue on this path as a lawyer, I will. If you want... Uh, me to do something different, well, then, you know, you better make it obvious because I'm pretty stubborn and I'll change paths. Otherwise, I'm going to sail off into the sunset and do more pro bono work and stuff like that. And sure enough, two weeks after I got back, I got that fateful call from Glad out of the blue. Wow. Yeah, okay. So there was a bit of a roundabout way of that happening. Yeah. Yeah. How fascinating. Yeah, it's tr- true story. True story. Yeah. So uh, a bit of a calling in a sense there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's now been 14 years. We'll get into where you're at now in this part of your career towards the end of the conversation. But let's talk about what you're responsible for now because I looked at your credentials. I probably will forget some of the ministries because you're leading quite a few. I don't know how you end up with so many ministries underneath you, but you're the Minister for Digital and the Minister for Customer Service. My list has disappeared. Now, there were a couple more that you can list out. And this is in the state government of New South Wales. So could you please explain to us what sits within your overall portfolio, which is huge, and then your biggest priorities as a leader of these ministries? Yeah, so my ministry covers the, I call it the customer, the regulation, the business, you know, the smarts inside of government that truly is focused around customer delivery. So obviously the customer is at the front face of it, but then you've got the businesses and then behind the businesses, you've got the regulators and the insurances and then you've got, you know, the big data pieces, uh, whether it's the data analytics centre, spatial services, uh, digital twins, behavioural insights, 
and the like. And then you get all the oversight mechanisms around that, such as the Privacy Information Commission and the, and, and the like. You know, I would cover off on small business, better regulation, and obviously customer services, Service New South Wales and a whole other range of important agencies inside there. So if you were a large enterprise, you'd almost be the chief operating officer and the chief information officer at the same time? That's how I present it. The treasurer in government is the CFO. The prime minister or the premier is the CEO. My role is like a COO, CIO. I've got cybersecurity in New South Wales as well. Yeah, fascinating. So listeners can imagine how much work sits underneath that and how many agencies and so on. And we're interested here in what it actually means to be a digital government. And let's dig into that a little bit because it's definitely more than having a great LinkedIn presence that you already have, <laughs> but there's more to being digital than that. Absolutely. And you have a strategy for becoming a leading customer-centric and digitally enabled government. So what does that actually mean in practice and how do you measure how you, you're there, how you're achieving that successfully? I really, really believe that if you want to be a customer-centric government, then you must empower the customer. And what I mean by that, particularly when it comes to government service delivery, enable them to help shape the direction of customer delivery. And what we do, one of my biggest tools yeah, to use that is through feedback. So every digital channel that we put out, whether it's have your say, a one-stop shop for government consultations on whether it's education, transport, customer service, whatever it is, every agency used to do their own consultation and uh, rather than focus on the customer, they focus on the agency. So, you know, me as a standard person living in Ride, I might have something in my mailbox on the, on the Friday saying, oh, we're, you know, we're thinking of putting a train station around here. And then on the same day, something from education, oh, we're thinking about putting a school around here. And then on the Monday, something from local council saying, oh, we're thinking about putting this. That's not customer-centric. Customer-centric is all of these agencies coordinate between themselves to say, tell me once and what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, what you're going to consult on, blah, blah, blah. So that have your say feedback is something that we've done under our watch, which is a one-stop shop for consultation in government. That means the customer-centric rather than agency-centric. But critical to that is I've insisted that the customer have the opportunity to provide easy feedback on each of not just the consultation but what that site looks like, how we can improve the site. Same with digital driver's license or fuel check or whatever digital product we're rolling out. I'm constantly asking for feedback so that we can, you know, solve the problems and be more innovative in terms of how we're forward-leaning for customer service delivery. So I think empowering the customer to shape what they want, what they need, and what's exciting for them is really core to that. Great. And a lot of people will say it sounds a lot like a business when you describe it like that with a customer and being customer-centric, which is wonderful language. The, the cynics out there will say, well, governments are monopolies. They, they don't have to do all that work because there's no competition as such, but you have a very different attitude towards that. So that is, is wonderful. And uh, I can see how this has sort of got to come together in my head, but I want to check with you whether I've got it right. So 
you have digitization of how customers or citizens interact with government agencies and that being streamlined, being able to do what you can do in the physical world, in the digital world, but also that I suppose information flows and the interconnectedness of ministries and agencies sort of flows across the system so that you don't have to bang the head, your heads against the wall depending on where you go in that whole ecosystem. Is that fair to say? Yeah, like, another way I describe it, you know, when I started the journey about five or six years ago, particularly through that the, the digital customer piece, as I said, you know, in, traditionally governments are the sun and we expect people to evolve and revolve around us. You know, you come to me with, and all my different agencies at my time of day, you know, between nine to five at my venue. But, you know, smart governments need to flip that inside out and make the customer the sun and we should evolve and revolve around the customer. Now, I say customer because we just don't provide services to citizens. We provide services to refugees. They are a high priority. They should be treated exactly the same way. We provide services to tourists. Again, we should roll out red carpet for them as well. You know, so we provide services to visa holders. So that's why just saying just citizens, what, so we're going to have two levels of services, one for citizens and one for refugees? No, you're a customer and we've got to treat you all the same way. Brilliant. Love it. With that ethos, it can only start out well, but... One of the things that I, I'm thinking about here, when I hear you talk about your role and the vast set of responsibilities that you have, is that digital government spans across all ministries and departments, not just the ones under you. So you need to provide thought leadership, influence, collaboration, etc., across this whole mesh of entities that is the new South Wales government. How do you do that well? It, that's really, really hard. And ultimately, that's the holy grail to getting a beast as big as New South Wales government or any government, but particularly something the size of New South Wales to, to move. The only way you can do that is through leadership and, you know, as you pointed out, through collaboration. So uh, we set up some oversight committees. So obviously the cabinet is like the board. So you have all the ministers around the cabinet, but then you have subcommittees of cabinet. And I was chair or a part of a group that oversights the digital spend. So, for example, we set up a fund, $2.1 billion for digital restart fund. So if agencies want to get access to that money, I would say, all right, well, show me your data architecture. Show me your customer lens. Show me the digital design. You know, show me the privacy. Show me the security. Show me that it's tell us once, not tell us a thousand times. Because if you don't cut that criteria, you're not going to get access to money. And that helps frame up other agencies outside my orbit, what good looks like. So that's one piece, getting them through that. And the other piece is through example. So obviously there's my agency, Department of Customer Service, and we need to be that exemplar to show what good looks like and say, look, this is what we're doing. The customers love it. They give us feedback saying they love the digital driver's license, they love this, et cetera, et cetera. And that then hopefully gives some inspiration to other agencies as well as the, you know, the other carrot and stick approach. 
It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Yeah, great. So setting a minimum standard and a bit of inspiration along the way. So if you get all this right, what is digital government in five to 10 years? How will we as consumers of it engage with it? And what will it feel like? Well, the number one priority for me for the last four so years has been digital identity and verifiable credentials. And this has really come to a fore now because of the high-profile hacks, whether it's Optus or Medibank, et cetera. And we're now seeing why privacy is sacrosanct. For, for years, it was, oh, yeah, you got my information, who cares? Now you got my information and somebody hacks into it, gets into the dark web, I could be exposed to a scam. Or worse still, my senior father or mother or some, a loved one that is not uh, really savvy could be easily exposed. So, you know, we are now putting a much, much as we should premium on privacy and security. A digital ID, a decentralised ID and credentials that we're working through in New South Wales that should hopefully be ready for legislation in the middle of the year and, and for rollout towards the back end of this year is literally world-leading because a lot of governments have got ID, it's been, but it's centralised. Some are playing in the credential space. What we're going to do is bring the two together in a decentralised model that is truly world-leading. So once you've got that, then go back to that metaphor about the sun and the customer being the centre. If the customer's got control of his or her ID, who they share that with and their terms for sharing, the control of their credentials and the terms upon which they share it, then if they've got the power on that, then they are the centre of the universe. And then service delivery must evolve and revolve around that. So that's the vision moving forward, and we're going to put a major play into that this year. So I see in, in five years' time a truly customer-centric delivery and governments getting subject to consent. And, you know, we've already got life administrators rolling this out, but subject to consent, government saying, look, as long as you let us, we can be more proactive in the information and the nudges, et cetera, et cetera, that we can give you instead of being reactive. We can help you out after the fire. We can help you out after the flood. But if you allow us, we can give you a nudge to say, hey, I'd be doing this to avoid the problems of X, Y, and Z. So I, that's how I see it moving forward. Yeah, very interesting. And you're touching on something that is, in my opinion, one of the most important topics of modern digital life. And I think actually is a little bit underappreciated, which is if we go about the way we are working today, it, it kind of feels like everyone's going to at some point get their identity copied and exposed uh, on the internet, right? It's just the way that things are working. I'm sure mine is out there in a million places in the dark web, right? Yeah, mine is as well. Yeah. So, so cleaning up that and actually having a framework for that is just a completely different paradigm for 
all of us in society to live in, even though we don't feel it physically. We're avoiding the terrible alternative, which is what we have right now. Yeah, I, I really commend you for doing that. Uh, I have thought about this a lot and how are we going as a society solve this? Because I think a lot about how we use data, of course. Are you able to share a bit about how it comes together behind the scenes or is it still coming together? Oh, no, no, it, it's very evolved. So as I said, like, I've already got the beta on my phone and uh, in terms of New South Wales digital ID and we, I will have that further evolved. So I'll have strong biometric by hopefully the end of next month. But because this is really a new way of, of thinking about the marketplace and the trusted marketplace, not just G to C, but G to B, B to C, because you know, we've got to open this up. We need to get the rules of engagement right. So if there is a breach in relation to any of this, there must be strong sanctions in place around privacy, security, et cetera. So we will do the betas in a very closed pilot, very small pilot, you know, 50 to 150, 300 max, and make sure we get that right. But in a parallel way, get the legislation up and running and then have the ledge hopefully ready by, again, say August, September, October, and then get to market. Now, the very first thing that we'll be working with, I'll give you a, a tangible example, is real estates. So we know in relation to renters, if I want to rent a property, I've got to give real estate agents, and not just one, multiple, a copy of my driver's licence and passport, et cetera, et cetera. Now, real estate agents might be doing the right thing or try to do the right thing, but you might get some agents like any other organisation, some are good, some are not. If their cyber hygiene is not good, then all my credentials are exposed and I'm going to be subject to the scam. So we'll work with the real estate agent so that when I go to rent a property, I don't need to show them my passport or my driver's licence. I just need to show them my New South Wales digital ID and New South Wales will validate that I am real. I'm not a bot. Uh, and that way all my credentials are protected with the individual. So that's a, a classic example of how we can start rolling this out. Same with hiring a car. Why do I need to provide a copy of my driver's license to a hire car company? Uh, they don't need to know my wet signature. They don't need to know my date of birth. They don't need to know a whole range of things. They just need to know I'm authorised to drive and I'm a real person. That's it. So that's how that will evolve moving forward. That I can see is, is really almost a rewrite of the digital society as we know it and super powerful because we have this, you can almost think of our identity or our personal information as a, it's a currency of sorts that we're trading with, with organizations, right? And right now it, it doesn't have a value on it directly, but it's actually, it has a very high negative value to the individual in the hands of the wrong person or sort of counterparties that are not there to do the right thing. So it's got a massive downside to it. You're really capping that to a large extent with this. So we're starting to get into, I think, the pillars of your strategy. And one of them is to build a strong digital economy. And I can see how this feeds into it. But how do you see overall the government's role in building a strong digital economy and You've talked about this initiative. Are there any other initiatives and success stories you can share in this regard? Yeah, well, the, the government is generally the gorilla in the marketplace. So, you know, if we move in a certain direction, the economy moves that way too. We, we just got a huge spend and, and the public service is so big. It's not just our government, every government, and generally large. 
So if we signal to the marketplace that we are prioritizing digital like we have, then the market will then move that way as well. I'll give you a classic example. We, we're going to roll out digital driver's licenses. Right now, 77%. So what did that mean? 77% adoption, which is very, very high. So that means when I go to a pub or a club, and in the past, I would have to show them my driver's license, they'd get a copy of it, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's all QR codes and they don't need to go through the same old rigmarole as they did before. But that required a whole lot of IT people coming in, helping them in the back end to lift their maturity. Because during COVID, we rolled out the QR check-ins. It means businesses then had to skill their staff about what that actually means. A lot of them didn't even know what a QR code was. Because we then moved to Dine Discover vouchers, all the businesses that want to be part of our platform to accept the Dine Discover vouchers or the Active Kids or Creative Kids, all digital, means they had to upskill their back end and so that they could get paid literally within days, not weeks. So that means there's a real halo effect. And that's in addition to the $2.1 billion that we're spending on smart cities and the like. And, you know, a range of initiatives that we're putting there, whether it's digital twin, whether it's a planning board, or whether it's deconstruction, there's just so much we're doing. Yeah, and you're really tapping in here to a segment then that is the small business that doesn't have its own IT department or anything like that, but you're actually digitizing a lot of their stuff by default because you're, you're bringing in these services, right? So I can see how powerful that is and how that touches. You mentioned clubs and pubs. They're not the first thing we think of when we think of a digital economy at all. They still have a huge opportunity there and you're sort of nudging them a little bit and pulling them in. So yeah, I can see that. That's it's quite fascinating. Yeah, well, businesses, again, like if... Businesses, their lifeblood, obviously the customer is critical, but their lifeblood is its turnover is money. They don't have money, they collapse. And the biggest complaint with governments is that they normally wait for the check in the mail. It takes them 30 days, 60 days. But if I can say to the businesses, look, if you just give me half an hour of your time and we get your systems up really quick once only, and that's repeatable, we'll have you that money in your account literally within 72 hours win everywhere. Customers mm. happy, happy, everyone's happy. So it's been a very powerful example of how you uplift. Yeah. What a fun job you have. This must be so rewarding, even though I'm sure it's hard. And if you don't mind, we'll move back a little bit to you now because you have actually decided to retire from politics after 14 years in the parliament of New South Wales. And that's a long stint. It's a long stint, yeah. Yeah. So maybe you can talk to us a little about that, but also what are the hardest parts of your job and what are the most rewarding parts? Oh, well, like, you know, I've been a minister for 12 years. I've been a member of parliament for, you know, coming up to 15 years, which is a long stint. Minister for 12 years, that's a long, long stint. You know, I think the average lifespan of a minister these days is about three years. So I'm a bit of a grandfather. And, you know, succession planning is important, but like a family health issue came up a couple of years ago and I I knew that it's one of those conditions that just doesn't get better. So, you know, I knew that there's going to be a time where I have to start spending more time with family. And, yeah, so I decided that 
this is it. As much as I love what I do, don't get me wrong, I love uh, it's such an extraordinary honour and privilege. But yeah, it's time to hand the baton over. To answer your question, the hardest part of the job at my level is priority. There is just so many things. It, you wake up every morning and there's so many opportunities, so many challenges. Where do you prioritise? And when I had to distill everything, that's why the digital ID and credentials was the number one priority because you get that right and pretty much put the customer in control of their identity and credential, then that truly then puts the the practicality to the expression around the customer being in control. Then we start turning government inside out. So that's been the priority um, together with privacy, security and ethics, et cetera. One of the most uh, rewarding parts of the job is just seeing the extraordinary uplift and the collaboration, seeing the teams just punch above their weight time and time again because we're all just excited by the journey. It's just so the transformation over the last five years uh, has been extraordinary. And uh, I don't know anybody that's been part of the mission that doesn't look back with a bit of pride saying, wow, look how far we've gone. And more importantly, look how far we will take this, So, which is great. Yeah, and I imagine when you say the last five years, half of that roughly, more or less, was in a pandemic where digitization is all of a sudden a completely different thing because you're actually all of a sudden this interface with lots of things when people can't leave their house easily and so on. Yeah, good point, Jonas. So I, yeah, I became involved in this, I'll call it this channel of ministry in around 2015. Uh, and we set up the data analytics centre and a few things. But at that point, people saw it as a, you know, a nice to have, a, a, you know, just a toy thing for Victor. But then we moved to the next level after the election in 2019 where, you know, I said to us, Gladys, I said, look, let's really put some muscle behind this. Let's create a whole department around it. So we built that out. And still people thought, what's this Department of Customer Service? You know, we know service news like, well, that's good, but what's Department of Customer Service? What are they trying to do over there? But then the pandemic hit, and then all of a sudden people realised the value proposition behind what we were trying to do. So it went from something that was novel at the back of the class to something that's really at the front of decision-making. And you know what? I've spoken to quite a few business leaders who have had a similar challenge where they've stood up some sort of digital enablement project in their organization and it was questioned but then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and people were saying oh we're so glad you did that six months beforehand because otherwise we wouldn't have the ability to log in or whatever it might be right so it, it really is huge risk management piece as well this whole digitization even though it can seem daunting to some people I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I actually picked up on a really, really important leadership lesson that I might just want to pull out and just comment on. And because you, you said it's very hard to prioritize, and for any sort of senior person, executive in a in a big job, that is common and the thing that probably is the most challenging thing every day. And what I heard you say is something I've heard also. The founder of Airbnb, he says this. His name escapes me now, but. When you can't prioritize, look for those couple of things that if they get solved, all these other things fall in place. So rather than all the things that are really important, what is that small number of things that really opens the doors for all the other things to be swept away with a magic wand almost? 
And that, that sounds like kind of how you've, you've decided to prioritize in the end. 100%. Like we, we fix identity and credentials, but in a decentralized model, uh, you take the hard edge off the cyber challenges that we've got. You take the hard edge off a lot of the privacy breaches we've got. Like I was just speaking to a small startup. Their number one concern is privacy. But if we can say you don't need to capture all this personal information because then you're at risk. The personal information should remain with the individual, the customer, and they you know, don't need to shield that their address and date of birth, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there are just so many multipliers around it. So, you know, that's why five years ago I said we are going to nail this and we have to. I like the word multiplier. It, it really is a multiplier effect, isn't it? Yeah, it's profound. In the data and digital age, I can't think of anything more important because ultimately we're moving into a world where everything's getting blurred. I'm going to do a social media post soon around, uh, I'll start with the line, let's talk about the A in AI, the artificial in artificial intelligence. And what is artificial and what is authentic? That's where we're moving in. And we need to understand increasingly what is real and what is not, what is authentic and what is artificial. Because the lines are written like with ChatGPT. That's, I think it's uh, only coming out in November. Imagine where that's going to be in five, six years' time. Sure, it's got a lot of flaws now, but that's only going to get smarter and smarter. So we need to, to really anchor in what's real and what's not and bringing it back to the customer every time. Yeah, and for government, this must be such a challenge right now because the technologies around this, they are evolving so fast. You're trying to catch up with regulation, which is actually quite complex. And and there's so many novelties in the way that AI makes decisions because it's it's novel to a human. We haven't had to make the decision of... So the example that people talk about often is if you have a self-driving car and if it turns right, it, it hits a, an old lady. If it turns left, it hits a mother with a pram or something like that. Which one should it choose? Humans are not able to make that distinction. And so how do we even train AI? And they, they, there are a million and one of these sort of awkward decisions that you have to make that are very hard to legislate around as well. I agree. I don't think our, I still think that our system of governance in, in the West is not fit for purpose in the data age. And I'm still trying to work in my mind what that better model would look like because governments, to your point, governments are traditionally slow when it comes to reg. You know, you've got the industry is normally ahead, as it should be, they're the innovators, and governments normally, you know, maybe a year or so after then catch up with the regulation. Now that lag is getting wider and wider because government's getting slower and slower and industry's getting faster and faster. But because of the lag, we're getting into some really dangerous territory here, as you, with that example you point out. So we need to find a model where we don't want to slow industry down because industry needs to be at pace so that they can cure cancer and cure blindness and help us solve some of the wicked challenges in our world. So we don't want to put a handbrake on industry, but we need to be able to accelerate government. So what does that model look like? I've got a few ideas in my head, but you know, I might give that for a speech downstream, but... Yeah, we need to really rethink that for a data century. Well, in a few months, you're out of politics and you can become a, a commentator so you can uh, you can share all your ideas with no consequence. <laughs> That's true. So, <laughs> so we'll look forward to your input there on how government should really work. Now, Victor, 
you have had this really long political career and leadership career and 12 years as a minister. And it's a very public leadership role. So you have had to really probably step into some places where you're outside your comfort zone and build leadership skills on the fly really quickly. So regularly have to do that. (laughs) Yeah, probably every day, (laughs) maybe even more than that. And I'm really interested in your biggest leadership lessons that you have learned throughout your career and whether you can share those with the audience. Obviously, collaboration is key. Everybody can do things in their swim lane and you'll get incremental change. But in large organisations or even small ones, you know, it's when you collaborate, you get the magic. That's when you get the wow factor happening. And I've seen that in government in particular. Like, you know, we can do amazing things in our swim stream, but to get the digital identity up, I need to collaborate with transport because they've got the drives, they've got the, they've got the drives licenses, et cetera, et cetera. We need to do some amazing collaboration with health so we can get the, the deep impacts on uh, health outcomes. So that's the one. But the really big one for me, it's just dawned on me in the last few years, and it's around mission. You know, in, in the, I guess like most politicians, we tend to focus on legacy. You know, what have I built? Where is my little, where's my plaque? What's the next thing we've done that I can say, look what I've done? And that means I can look over my shoulder, I built that, I built that, I built that. Yeah, that's very, for me, I realise that that's just not the way forward. Like that doesn't inspire. And what inspires is mission, not legacy, but mission, to be part of a mission moving forward, not a legacy looking behind. So I think that is a, a key component of leadership because I'm not going to be here forever, but the mission always will. So that's why leaders need to focus on the mission. Leaders are not historians. We, we need to learn from the past, but we need to focus on the future. Love it. So listeners, take that from someone who's had very much a long career in politics, which is uh, not easy. It's all about the mission. Yeah, 100%. I think that's great. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. Look, Victor, I have two questions for you remaining. The first one is I always ask the guests on the show to pay it forward and my question to you is who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? I actually Bill Shorten, because he's responsible for Services Australia. And, and you know, I, I like the way Bill's thinking. I, I was at a recent data digital ministers meeting and he came up with this cracker of a line. And I don't want to I hope I'm doing him justice, but he said something to the effect that when it comes to service delivery, government service delivery, Australians are not interested with old colonial boundaries. And I just thought he nailed it. He's absolutely spot on. Like if I've got a driver's licence in Victoria or Queensland or New South Wales, am I really interested about borders? Not. I just want to be able to, if I've got a driver's licence in New South Wales, I want to be able to use it in Queensland, Western Australia, whatever. That seamless service delivery 
is what I'm interested in, not old political boundaries. Leave the political boundaries for, you know, football games and, you know, sports and stuff like that. But we should be collaborating. So I really like Bill's mindset. And I think if we can collaborate with the feds, you know, states and territories can collaborate better with the feds, we really get that game change moment. So, you know, I think he would have a lot to add in this space because he's got such a massive portfolio and he, essentially he's my federal counterpart because he's got Services Australia. Brilliant suggestion. Hopefully we'll get Bill on here to verify your quote. And as a consumer of, of government services, I couldn't agree more, especially when, when you jump between states. It would be very nice to have some seamlessness there. Uh, Victor, the last question, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content, your news feeds? My favourite channel is LinkedIn because that's the mission channel. Because I think a lot of people on LinkedIn are focused on that mission of you know, having a far better customer experience, focused on transparency, focused on privacy, focused on security, ethics around AI, et cetera. So, you know, that's my main channel. So, yeah, people, after politics, I'm, so, I'm not going into a hole somewhere to give us my knowledge. I don't know what I'm going to do after politics at this point, but you know, I'll still be an active contributor. I'll be a, a part of the mission still in some form, I hope. Brilliant. And you have a great social media channel. So I do encourage all listeners to go and check it out and click that follow button. And I like you, my only social media advice is LinkedIn these days. All the other stuff is gone from my life, but uh, I do like that because it, it really is the right people in there. Oh, they're very professional. The feedback is solid. The amount of inspiration I get from people on feedback, on LinkedIn giving feedback, because they're very informed. So, I, you know, I, re- I don't respond to every comment because, uh, you know, it's a 24-hour job, but I definitely read the comments. And I think, wow, that's a good idea. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. I didn't know about that. That's great. So it definitely helps frame my thinking as well. So, no, it's a great channel. I've looked at some of your posts and I can see what you mean. There's some really good commentators on there and, and quite genuine feedback and so on. And the trolling ratio is uh, relatively low. So <laughs> that's that's good. <laughs> All right, if you want trolls, go and play in, in Twitter. Uh, just uh, there's not enough. I'm on this planet for a second, for five seconds, for you know, maybe five years, ten years. Who knows? I don't want to spend my life with trolls. I want to spend my life with inspiring people. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And with that, Victor, I think we're at the end. Thank you so much, Victor Dominell, for being on Leaders of Analytics today. Highly interesting, highly inspiring, and I think. You have given people a glimpse into what politics is, but also a bit of inspiration around how to be a true servant leader. So I thank you for that and all the best with the remaining political career and beyond. Thanks, Jonas, and thanks for the great work you're doing. We're part of the mission together, so thank you. Hi, dear listener. Just a quick note from me before you go. If you enjoyed this show, then please don't forget to subscribe to future episodes via your favorite podcast app. I have loads more great stuff coming your way. Also, I'd love some feedback from you on this show. So please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and catch you soon.
it's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got great- 